Because of the unique nature of academic medical centers, the Stark Law has its own exception related to academic medical centers. In this episode, I will discuss the application of this exception and alternatives to the use of the academic medical centers exception. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the anti-kickback statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity. Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade and I am your host. Well, today I'm going to be talking about the Academic Medical Center's exception. And sometimes, uh, especially people who are involved with academic medical centers, you're going to scratch your head and ask, well, why is there a separate exception for academic medical centers? Because as you're going to hear in this episode, with respect to the compensation arrangement with the physicians who are affiliated with the academic medical centers, their compensation still must be set in advance, must be fair market value, and it cannot be determined in a manner that takes into account the volume or value of referrals. And so you would say, well, isn't that the same as the employment exception under the Stark Law, as well as the, uh, the personal services arrangements exception? And the answer is yes. But I think the real key to the academic medical centers is that money flows between the academic medical center and also practice plans and ultimately to the physicians. And as Stark Integrity listeners know that there's such a thing as a direct compensation arrangement and an indirect compensation arrangement. So my belief is that the academic medical center exception exists because of the indirect nature of the compensation that is flowing from the academic medical center down through the divisions of the academic medical center, including the practice plans and ultimately to the physicians who are part of those practice plans. Now, it should be noted up front that this exception, the academic medical center's exception, applies to both ownership and investment arrangements as well as compensation arrangements. So as Stark Integrity listeners know that some of the exceptions apply to ownership and investment arrangements, some of the exceptions apply to only compensation arrangements, and some of the exceptions apply to both. So the Academic Medical Center's exception applies to both the ownership arrangements as well as compensation arrangements. And you think if you're part of an academic medical center, the practice plans can be owned by physicians. Uh, So because of that ownership is the reason why the Academic Medical Center applies to both ownership as well as to compensation arrangements. 
And for those of you who are Stark Law geeks, what's interesting about this exception, it's sort of uh, laid out from the bottom up. I think the most important uh, component of this exception is the definition of an academic medical center, and which is at the bottom of the exception if you're reading through the regulations. Uh, so I'm going to start with what is an academic medical center, because, I, again, I think that's the most important thing for all of us to understand as we apply this exception. So to be an academic medical center, you need to be either an accredited medical school that could include a university or an accredited academic hospital. And this exception has a definition for what is an accredited academic hospital. And it's a hospital or health system that sponsors four or more approved medical education programs. So these are like your residency programs. So you would have to have four or more of these type of programs. So if you are a hospital that only has a family medicine res residency program, then you are not an accredited academic hospital. You would need more than just the family medicine. You need to have the uh, an OB or general surgery or orthopedic surgery or oncology or pediatrics, etc. So it'd have to be four or more programs in order to be an accredited academic hospital. So again, either accredited medical school or an accredited academic hospital. You have to be affiliated with one or more faculty practice plans that are affiliated either with the medical school or the hospital. And so the, and these are where the physicians are typically housed are in these practice plans. And the last definition is really focusing in on the staff members, the medical staff members, as well as the admissions. So in order to be a, an affiliated, you have to have an affiliated hospital that the majority of the medical staff members are faculty members of the accredited medical school or the accredited academic hospital. So 51% of the medical staff members have to be faculty. And then secondarily, the majority, again, 51% or 50 plus percent or more of the admissions to the hospital have to be from the faculty members. So we have two 51% tests. So 50 or 50 plus, 50 plus have to be of the, of the medical staff members have to be faculty and the majority of the admissions uh, to the hospital have to come from the faculty members. And you do not count resident, resident physicians or non-physician practitioners. And you can, you can, so this is more of a may, you can count courtesy staff members or even volunteer medical staff members. But if you're going to include those as classes, you have to include the entire class. So if you have courtesy physicians, you have to include all courtesy physicians. So if the courtesy physicians, some of them could be faculty members, some could not. So if the majority are of the courtesy physicians are faculty members, you may want to include them as a class, but you have to include all courtesy. Uh, so obviously, if you have uh, less than the majority of courtesy physicians are um, less than 51%, you may not want to include that class. So if you're going to include class, you have to include uh, the entire class. So that is what an academic medical center is. So the most important part is taking a look at the majority of the medical staff members, uh, as well as the majority of the admissions in order to be classified as an academic medical center under the Stark Law. So again, whenever we're doing these type of definitions, we're defining it under the Stark Law. 
So again, going back to what I said at the very beginning of this episode, with the assumption that we have an academic medical center, then dollars can flow through the various components of that academic medical center and ultimately land in the pockets of the physicians. Uh, so that's an indirect compensation arrangement that can exist. Uh, if we're not meeting the indirect compensation arrangement definition. Again, I have an episode in Stark Integrity on that. This is just an exception under the Stark Law where we don't have to actually go through to determine whether or not we have an indirect compensation arrangement. This exception is recognizing the financial dependency between the various components of the academic medical center. So ultimately, for Stark Law compliance as it relates to academic medical centers, we want to make sure that the physicians who are making referrals into the hospitals and the other services of the components of the academic medical centers can be made and not violate the Stark Law. So the next inquiry is what physicians are covered by the academic medical center exception? Well, first off, they have to be W-2 employees. So they have to be a bona fide employee of a component of the academic medical center, either on a full-time or a substantial part-time basis. Now, what's interesting about the use of substantial part-time basis is this exception does not define what is substantial, but I think it is going to be 20% or more of their time is related to the academic medical center services. So the physician has to be an employee, again, full-time or substantial part-time, of either the affiliated medical school, the faculty practice plan, so that's usually where the physicians are housed. They're housed in these practice plans. They, have, they can be a direct employee of the hospital, uh, of a teaching facility, or an institution of higher education. It could be a department of a professional corporation, it can be even a, a nonprofit support organization whose primary purpose is to fulfill or support the teaching mission of the academic medical centers. And you know these various components do not need to be uh, separate legal entities. They can all be one single entity and operated as divisions. But typically with the academic medical centers that I represent, they are typically self, you know, separately incorporated as separate legal entities. So continuing with the qualifications of the referring physician, the physician must be licensed to practice medicine in the state. Uh, they have to have a bona fide faculty appointment at the medical school or at one or more of the educational programs at the accredited academic hospital. So they have to be a faculty member. So you know, typically uh, that is either they're, they're the chair of the department, they're a chief of the department, they could be a professor or an assistant professor. So they have to have some type of academic component of their overall arrangement. And so they have to be appointed as an official faculty member. And then next, they can't be just designated as a faculty member uh, as a token name. They have to provide substantial academic services or substantial clinical teaching services or a combination of, the, of those two for which the faculty member, the physician, receives compensation as part of their employment relationship with the academic medical center. And typically, uh, these are called the color of the school or the medical school. Like a lot of times, if the color of the medical school is red, they will call that the red check. 
or if gold is in the in the color of the medical school, it's the gold check. That's to separate the check for the academic or teaching services separate from the clinical services. So the physician could be receiving money for their direct patient care services that are not teaching and are not academic. They can receive that compensation through the practice plan, which is separate uh, from the, their academic or teaching services, but then they would receive their compensation through this separate check through the academic medical center. Again, sometimes referred to as the red check, gold check, white check, black check, what have you. And I've used the word substantial here. And according to the regulations is that uh, either 20% of their professional time or eight hours per week, they have to be providing academic services or clinical teaching services. So that's uh, it's either a 20% test of their overall time or eight hours a week. Now, they go into great detail about this 20% and eight-hour test, but I'll read you this sentence that's in the exact same paragraph. It says that a physician who does not spend at least 20% of his or her professional time or eight hours per week providing academic services or clinical teaching services is not precluded from qualifying under this paragraph. So even though they throw in this 20% test and this eight-hour test, they even say even if you don't meet those tests, you can still qualify as a referring physician as long as you have that academic faculty appointment. And as I said at the very beginning, uh, just consistent with the methodology throughout the Stark Law and in all the various episodes on Stark Integrity, that the compensation that's paid to the referring physician, wherever that, that source of compensation is coming from, whether it's through the practice plan, through the red check, through the gold check, what have you, that the compensation must be set in advance, that the aggregate compensation that's paid by all components of the academic medical center. So here we're really focusing on the academic medical center compensation, that the aggregate is deemed to be fair market value. And just as an aside, there are academic benchmark data uh, that do exist that you can look at for those various roles that I talked about, whether or not you're professor, chair, or chief. And also that the compensation paid is not determined in any manner that takes into account the volume or value of referrals that the, the physician is making within the academic medical center and all components of the academic medical center. And consistent with the methodology under Stark that if referrals are going to be mandated, which they can be, then, you, then it has to be in writing consistent with the methodology in the Stark Law. So we have those exceptions. I can mandate your referrals unless the patient desires otherwise, the patient's insurance does not cover, or the physician believes that it's not in the best medical interest of the patient to receive services through the various components of that academic medical center. So again, if mandated referrals are required, then it has to be in writing. Now I'm going to focus in on the transfer of money. So an academic medical center can transfer money between the various components of the uh, the academic medical center, the school, the practice plan, uh, the hospitals, the teaching facilities, a nonprofit support organization, what have you, as long as it supports the mission of the teaching or for indigent care, research, or community service. So it has to support the Academic Medical Center's mission of teaching, providing services for indigent care, research, or for community service, which is not hard to meet. 
uh, as long as you, especially you can show that there is you know, definitely some support for the community or indigent care. Now, although this exception does not require that there be a written contract signed by the physician to receive their compensation, the various components of the academic medical center, if there are separate legal entities, then there has to be written agreements between the various components for the passing of funds between those components. So there has to be one or more written agreement between the various uh, components of the academic medical center adopted by their governing body. And so you have to take it to the board. So this is not just an administrative adoption of a contract. It really has to go through the governing body. Uh, but if you have one legal entity over which all the components fall under, then as long as you have a routine uh, financial reports or the passing of money between the various divisions, then that is fine. So uh, again, if you have separate legal entities, there has to be a contract uh, of how the funding is going to go through the various components, and it has to be approved by the governing body of the various academic medical center components. And this exception also talks about research, that if research is going to be funded, that all money paid to a referring physician for research must be used for bona fide research or teaching. And it must be consistent with all terms or conditions of the grant, the grant that is supporting the research. So this is where kind of the research compliance and academic medical center compliance come together. That if a physician is receiving money for research and the grant is violated, then the, any compensation that is paid to the physician for that research component in violation of the grant uh, all those referrals from that physician are now tainted under Stark. So that's the reason why if, if you are relying on the academic medical center exception and you have discovered a grant violation for research, then we you not only have a, a violation for the National Institute for Health through their grant program or whoever the grant is coming from, but also have to be concerned about Stark. Uh, and therefore, any referrals... Uh, the researching physician has made to a various components of the academic medical center, like their hospitals, then all of those referrals are now tainted and you now have a Stark Law violation. So uh, we have to be very vigilant if you're going to use the academic medical center exception as it relates to the operation of research to make sure the research is consistent with the grants. So now I've unpacked the academic medical center exception. And obviously, there's various uh, components that need to qualify. Like I said at the very beginning, I think one of the greatest utilities of this except, exception is for the passing of funds through the medical school uh, onto the various components, including the practice plans. And we don't have to be concerned about the indirect compensation arrangement exception. So here's I'm going to throw you a curveball. You don't need to meet the academic medical center exception, even if you are an academic medical center. As long as you qualify with respect, I'm going to focus in on compensation arrangements, you meet another compensation arrangement exception. You may meet the bona fide employee exception, or you can read, uh, meet the personal service arrangements exception. Uh, but here, you do have to be concerned about either the direct compensation or indirect 
So if money is flowing through, let's say that you don't meet the academic medical center exception and money is flowing through the various components of the academic medical center and ultimately gets into, I'm sorry, ultimately gets into the practice plan and the practice plan pays the physician, then you will have to be concerned about the indirect compensation arrangement definition, which I've talked about in Stark Integrity, and ultimately go to the indirect compensation arrangement exception. So we can avail ourselves of the use of the academic medical center exception, but you don't have to, and then it would just be a traditional Stark Law analysis. So now it's time for the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for today. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, if you're going to use the academic medical center exception, you will need to make sure that you carefully look at the exception components and make sure that the you meet the definition of an academic medical center. And again, that 51% of faculty members on the medical staff and 51% of the admissions uh, are from the faculty members. Captain Integrity punch point number two is there is some some leeway of using the academic medical center exception because money can flow through the various components and ultimately to the physician through the practice plan. Uh, and, and you don't have to be concerned about the indirect compensation arrangement, as well as there is no requirement that the compensation be in writing and signed by the physician. It does with the various components of the academic medical center if they're separate legal entities, but not directly with the, uh, with the physician. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is even if you are an academic medical center, you do not need to meet the academic medical center exception. And then it just becomes a usual uh, meeting of the either direct or indirect compensation arrangement and also looking at the bona fide employment exception uh, or the personal services arrangement exception or even the fair market value exception. So even if you are an academic medical center, you do not need to meet the academic medical center exception. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.